Hey everyone, you're listening to the PhD Survival Guide podcast, the podcast made by PhD students for PhD students. In today's episode, we will be covering our first essential PhD skill, reading. We're going to tackle what are the different types of articles, how to effectively read, what is impact factor and does it matter, what is peer review, and much, much more. Hope you enjoy the episode and let's roll out that nice intro music. everyone and welcome back to the PhD Survival Guide podcast episode number three. I'm your host Firas and I just wanted to get this episode started by saying what an overwhelming amount of support that we've gotten so far. I know I said that in the second episode but seriously I didn't think that it would have such a big reception in the first two episodes so for that I am very grateful. Um, I've gotten a lot of suggestions and I do want to reiterate that I'm not going to be able to get to all of them so quickly because I do have a set list of episodes that I want to tackle and I think are really important skills for PhD students to have, um, as well as different things that they have to know as they're going through their PhD. But I will get to all of them and I will get to them in a timely fashion. A lot of people have been asking about imposter syndrome, Uh, how to maintain relationships in a PhD, and other things that are equally as important. So again, I'm going to be having other guests on the show, and we'll be talking about all of those in depth. So thank you very much for those suggestions, and keep them coming. As a quick reminder, if you do have a suggestion for the episode, there's always going to be a Q&A link down in the Spotify description below the episode. Uh, Just feel free to populate that with whatever, and you know, once I read it, I'll get to it and we'll tackle that in a future episode. But with this episode, I did want to start with one of our PhD essential skills. So going back to the premise of this is a survival guide, I also want to start a series within this survival guide that'll be called essential skills. Essentially, these are going to be skills that all PhD students need um, in order to continue within their career. With this one, we're going to tackle one that you should be doing from the very beginning of your PhD, and that's reading. Reading is such an important aspect of the PhD because this is where you're going to get the majority of your information from. You can only learn so much within the lab that you have to look outside of what's going on in your lab to really understand where the field is at and how it continues to grow because the science is dynamic. It's ever so changing. There are discoveries happening every day and papers being published all the time that really tell us where these ideas or how to shape your hypothesis, where your hypothesis is even coming from. And so let's go ahead and set the expectation from now. Reading isn't going to teach you exactly how to do experiments. It'll give you a general idea or sense as to how experiments are performed, especially with methods papers, but we'll delve into that in just a second. More so, reading is in order to build the conceptualization of your project, how to continue to grow it, what directions you need to go in in your PhD to get the most impact out of your work. Um, what kinds of experiments you should be running, what the field enjoys to see, what's very impactful versus what might be more of a waste of your time, you know, in the laboratory. So again, reading is just going to be this conceptualization of your project, understanding the 
entirety of a disease or specific risk factors that can impact the disease or even how diseases are related to one another. You can learn a lot from reading and you should be, again, doing this from the very beginning of your PhD. But as a new PhD student, you might find it really hard to get started reading. You know, I the reason why I wanted to start with this one is because I think when I started my PhD, I had tried to get into reading so many different types of articles and everything, and I spent the majority of my time, probably over 95% of my time, on Google, because you're reading something and a sentence is going to have 9 out of 10 words that you're not going to understand at the very beginning of your PhD. So you're spending a lot of your time on Google looking up proteins or drugs or maybe even pathological terms that you might not be understanding right at the beginning. So in order to really dodge the Google experience and spending most of your time on Google, which you will be doing as a first year PhD, I'm going to teach you guys how to read more effectively. But in order to read more effectively, you need to understand what types of literature are out there and what each article type means. So let's go ahead and just get started. Let's pretend like you opened up the Journal of Nature, right? Nature Journal. And you go to their latest edition and you start scrolling down all of the different articles that are available there. There are going to be a lot of different types that are grouped differently, and they're all going to be about different things. And as somebody that's new to reading any type of literature, this is going to be very overwhelming. So you have six different types of literature that you're probably going to run into the most. And those are going to be one, research articles. And these are essentially a primary literature report. Scientists are going to publish their findings as a research article. And this is going to be the majority of the literature that you're going to be reading as a student and continuously reading throughout your academic career. The second type of article is going to be the literature review. And this is when authors write about the current state of the field based on the given research available. You're going to see this conglomerate of papers all put into one research article, or review article, sorry. And that's going to be an excellent article to especially be reading in your first years as a student and continuously also reading throughout your academic career. The third type of article is going to be a methods article. This is going to be an article that solely teaches scientists new techniques or even iterations of techniques that are already available in the laboratory. These papers are very useful to set up the basis for new experiments. And then that leads us to our fourth article. Uh, that would be short communications. These are very short research articles, sometimes referred to as uh, micro articles. These articles typically have one or two figures. They describe some interesting and important research being done. Uh, these articles have been less popular in recent years due to the rise of preprints. And that's our fifth type of article, and those are preprints. Uh, these are non-peer-reviewed articles. They're very popular. Uh, a very popular site that actually hosts these is called BioArchives. You've probably run into it before. The reason for these articles is so that authors can get their research out there while they work on reviews or await editorial comments and decisions and make it available to the general public. And then our last article type are going to be, I kind of grouped these all together, but these are editorials, perspectives, letters. Uh, these are basically other scientists that may be invited to give their opinion on a published article or might just be giving their opinion on a published article. And these typically tend to be nice short reads that add another perspective to the field that is important to grasp the potential impact research has in total on the field. So, whoa, Firas, like you just told us you're going to break it down and you just gave us six articles in about a minute. So what, what am I supposed to be reading? Well, 
great question. <laughs> you should be reading uh, right at the beginning, probably literature reviews. And the reason why I say that is because literature reviews are written in these more general terms that give the reader the opportunity to understand everything at that point in time as to what's been completed. So I really like literature reviews. It's going to give you this entire aspect of what's going on in that specific uh, topic. And there are so many different topics that you could look up. And the easiest way to do this is just hop on PubMed or even on Google and just type in the topic that you want. So for example, I want to learn about the pathology of Alzheimer's disease. So I'll type in pathology Alzheimer's disease review. And you're going to get a whole list of review articles that had just come out maybe in more recent years or even further in the past on Alzheimer's disease and what all that current research has done. You can get even more specific with it and type in something like amyloid pathology within Alzheimer's disease. And it's going to populate everything on amyloid pathology and Alzheimer's disease. If you want to look at pesticides, if you want to look at air pollution or any different factors within a specific disease, you can just pretty much look that up in PubMed or Google and just slap the word review at the end of that. And you'll be able to get a ton of different articles that authors have put together all of their findings from different articles into one, and it describes it very nicely. So based off of that, we know that a review is going to give us a lot of the background information that we need in order to start understanding the different research articles or methods or short communications, preprints, or all the other things that I talked about earlier. But what we need to know also is that a review isn't going to give us all the primary data from research articles. At the end of the day, as a researcher, it's your job to critique and criticize and really delve into and look under the microscope of all the different research that's going on. So how do you do that if you can't get that from a review? Well, the review is going to give you the background. The review is going to give you everything that you need to know, all the terminology, all the jargon, everything on the topic that you want to go into. Then you have to start reading the research articles. And this is where students are going to start to struggle because it can get very complicated. So in order to effectively read a research article, we need to know what are the components of a research article. And this is typically broken down into the abstract, introduction, methods, results, conclusion, and discussion. And that's about it. What becomes difficult about that is trying to digest all of that information in one shot. When you're a student reading and it's your first time reading a research article, you're going to get really confused about what parts you should be reading. You'll be going back into the introduction after reading something from the results, skipping forward into the discussion, skipping back, and you'll be doing this back and forth a lot. And that's normal. That's okay. You know, you should be doing that from the very beginning. And even now, like as a fifth year PhD student, I still do that when I'm reading. I'll go back to the results to see exactly what they were trying to say or into the discussion to see what they were trying to concur from their findings. So pro tip, if you're just getting into reading or you're finding it hard to get into reading, just trust me on this. Don't skip anything. Uh, don't be the person that just reads the abstract and that's where they're getting all of their information from. And don't be the person that skips the introduction and goes straight to the results because you'll be missing the entirety of what they were trying to say from the beginning. And that's the most important part about reading is that this is going to be a skill that you have to grow, that you have to build. And in order to grow or build something just like any other skill in life, 
it requires practice. So just keep practicing your reading. Keep reading research articles. At some point, it starts to get easier and it starts to click. You'll start finding that you can read through the introduction a lot quicker, understand what the researchers are trying to convey in their message. And even when you get to the methods and the results, you'll be reading much quicker through that. But you heard me from the beginning say that you have to be the expert and have to understand how to critique. So what do I mean by critique? Well, a rule that I go by whenever I read any piece of literature is to not just blindly trust whatever the authors are trying to say. And you're going to run into that the most in the discussion portion. So really quickly, the discussion is going to be the part of the research article that goes back and looks back through everything from their results and tries to make inferences on or interpretations of their data and how they convey that. Now, does that mean that I don't (laughs) believe anything that the authors are ever saying? No, that's not true. You do want to have an open mind when you read any type of article because there are going to be articles out there that are going to challenge the status quo. There are going to be a lot of research articles that challenge what is already known in the literature. So how do you do that, especially someone that's new to reading? The best way, in my opinion, to get those types of skills is to get them from your lab mates or other collaborators or Uh, colleagues that you work with very regularly. And a great way to do it is to A, ask questions, but B, to start a kind of club where you can read these things. We call these journal clubs typically. And what they are are just a bunch of us that get together, we read a paper and we sit down and we go through the entirety of the paper. So we break it down by introduction, methods, everything. So in the introduction, we're trying to understand what the authors are trying to set up for the entirety of the paper. For the methods, we're trying to see exactly what the authors did and if everything is completely transparent. And if it is transparent, is that exactly how we would have done the same experiments? What might be missing from the experiments? Or what did we gain from those experiments? What did what have we learned that's new from those experiments? In the results section, we're breaking down the entirety of the meat and potatoes of the research article, the primary data. All of the data are going to be in the results. So When we get there, we're really trying to ask, are these results exactly what this experiment would be showing? Is this indicative of what we would expect? If we didn't expect it, why do you think that it came out this way, et cetera, et cetera. So we're asking a lot of the questions, and this is where the majority of our journal club time is spent, is during the results. And then finally, we'll get to the discussion. Do we agree with the author's interpretation of their own data? Do we think that there are different interpretations? What are some of the limitations of their experiments and what would we have liked to see? A common question that I'll typically ask is that if we lived in a perfect world and you had all the time and all the money to do these experiments to get to the answer to your research, what experiments would you have included? And in reality, that's never going to happen and there will always be limitations to any research article, to all research articles, even the ones that we publish, even the ones that you back and everything, there are going to be limitations. But these are the types of questions that we should be asking when we read research articles because this is what allows us to expand and understand the conceptualization of that project. The thing that I was talking about at the very beginning of this episode of the podcast, how to really start to conceptualize our project or the state of the field even. So yeah, it's going to take time. But the important thing is to continue to read and to try as much as you can to read as much as possible. Uh, Something that my PI always says is that if you think you've read enough, you probably haven't. And then the second tip for that is to start a journal club if there's not already a journal club around. 
because then you can really gain some tips and knowledge from the people around you that have been doing it for a little bit longer and understand how to actually read, how to properly read. And that'll just speed up the entire process. You're going to start reading through articles a lot quicker, especially with a journal club there, because A, you're going to be forced to read that paper whether you like it or not, but B, to also know how to break it down efficiently. So we've given up to this point a decent guideline on how to start reading and how to even read some papers and some tips along those lines. But now where do you go get those papers from and what journals do you want to get those papers from? Now, before I break down some of these important factors, I want to reiterate and stress that you should be reading all articles the exact same way. No matter what journal it comes from, whether it be a much more well-known journal or one that's not as well-known, you should be reading all articles the exact same way. Somewhere along your PhD, you're going to come across a term called impact factor. And by definition, impact factor is a metric used to describe the average number of citations an article receives within a scientific journal. It's commonly used as an indication of the impact a journal has towards its field. Simply put, the higher the impact factor, the more likely an article is going to be cited in that specific journal. And what do citations mean? Well, citations mean that more people are reading that article and more people are using that article as sometimes the basis to their own hypotheses or their own research or their own investigations. Hence why it's called impact factor. So you could be using impact factor to kind of understand where the majority of the reading is happening, if you want to put it that way. You can see what journals are very popular, what journals are getting cited a lot. Uh, you know, those are going to be your Nature, your Cell, your JAMA. And as you start to go down that list, you'll see all the other journals that follow. You can get these impact factors. They release a list, I believe, every year. You can also just Google um, whatever journal you're reading, what the impact factor of that journal is. Now, the very important takeaway from impact factor is that it's essentially just a citation index. It does not mean that one journal is better than another journal. It does not mean that the quality of a lesser impact factor journal is nothing compared to that of Nature or Cell or JAMA, those ones that I had listed earlier. And the reason why I bring this up is because you hear it a lot. And the fear is that impact factor might be used as a benchmark to start describing what's a good quality versus a bad quality paper. Another note on impact factor is that it tends to be driven up by the more trendier reads. So right now, you know, you have uh, neuroscience, you have cancer. These are some of the things that readers are reading more about. Now, dietetics, nutrition, the journals that are dedicated towards different fields that might not be as read about will have lower impact factors. But that doesn't mean that the quality of the research that's in those journals is lesser than that of the higher impact factor journals. And just a final note on that is that journals that tend to publish more reviews will also have higher impact factors because reviews tend to be cited more. Uh, they're going to give a lot of background information. You'll see a lot of reviews cited in the introduction as well as the discussion of a lot of research articles. So that's my advice on impact factor. Just take it very literally for what it is, a citation index. This is, again, my personal opinion, and you don't have to necessarily agree with that. You can look at impact factor another way. It also doesn't mean that I think that higher impact factor journals are 
worse journals or shouldn't be regarded as such good journals because in reality a lot of those higher impact factor journals have such strict review processes that goes through an entire paper uh, something that i like about cell the journal cell is that they have something called the star methods where they have this entire listing of all the reagents and all the protocols and all the antibodies everything used in the paper very detailed supplemental methods very detailed supplemental results everything that you need in that paper will be there so that's what i really like about some of these higher impact factor journals but what is a strict review and what do i mean by that Another thing that you have to consider when you're looking at articles to start reading is whether it comes from a peer-reviewed journal or from something like BioArchive, something that's not peer-reviewed or something that's pre-print. Essentially, peer review is when a group of reviewers looks at a manuscript that's being submitted for publication and they go through it and they look at all the edits that need to be made as well as some of the conceptual ideas of the experiments and the results and everything in between. So a peer-reviewed article is going to have already gone through a bunch of set of eyes that say, hey, you need to maybe add an experiment here or add some interpretation for certain concepts that may not be described very properly. This is going to differ a lot from preprints or non-peer-reviewed articles. Those are articles that come from sources such as bioarchives, where Essentially what's happening, the authors are going to upload these without any type of review. No other pairs of eyes are going to be looking at the article before it makes it out to the general public. That doesn't mean you don't have to read those papers or not trust those papers. That just means that you should be aware that no reviewers have looked at it. In fact, I even challenge a lot of new readers to go and read these papers because it's going to give you a kind of basis into more like critiquing. It's going to allow you to really get nitty-gritty and look at what a paper is trying to interpret or say about the results that they're finding and even get access to papers that haven't hit the journals yet. So you're getting all of this information prior to when it would normally be published. And the real advantage to that is that it shapes science a lot quicker. You have quicker access to the data. You have quicker ability to see all the interpretations and the way that science is moving and the way that science is dynamic. Oftentimes, papers might take months to be published or even years in certain cases. And the data that are coming out, you know, that you're reading might have already been done a couple of years ago and people are already working on newer things. So again, that's the real advantage to any type of non-peer-reviewed article or something like bioarchives. So with that, I'll move into our last segment. I hope I've put together a pretty comprehensive guide on how to start reading, how to break down the papers, what each paper means or what the different article types are, and that'll help ease you into the reading in a PhD. Again, this is a very essential skill, something that you should be doing from the very beginning all the way to your very end and even beyond. It's a skill that you're going to carry and shape the way that you see science. So let's move into our Reddit post of the day. This one's titled, I used to be so proud of myself. It comes from January 9th of 2022. I'm in a PhD program now, and I remember in undergrad, I used to be so proud of myself. I just went to a gathering where I met some undergrads from my former alma mater, and they are so confident and nice. I remember when I felt like I had potential. It's a weird thought. So the reason why I picked this post specifically and the reason why I wanted to relate it back to this episode about reading is because when I started my PhD, 
I genuinely, like, this is very simply put, very honest. I genuinely felt like the dumbest person in the room, almost at all times. I felt like I wasn't proud of myself, that I wasn't, you know, as smart as I thought I was or what I had known in undergrad was a lot more than what I had just gotten myself into. And in reality, what's happening is that you're moving from, you know, your senior year of undergrad where you figured pretty much everything out. You've got maybe senioritis, you want to graduate, you're just over it, you know, or, or whatever the case is, and into a brand new program where you don't know anything compared to the people around you. You really don't. And the PhD is meant to train you all the way up to the level of expert, to that level of where the people are around you. So it's a long road and there's a lot to learn along the way. It's very easy to get discouraged in your PhD throughout the entire process, but to really start to have this self-doubt. And for me, and what I think is true for a lot of PhD students, is that this self-doubt comes from us looking in the mirror and comparing ourselves to the people around us. And I don't think that's a proper way to do anything at all. If there's anything that I've learned in the PhD is that you have to stop comparing yourself to the people around you. It's not a fair thing to do to you or to those people because every PhD is different. Every PhD is unique. Every student is unique. And they're going to learn things at their pace. And that's totally okay. So to this person, what I would say is like, you know, you should be proud of yourself Uh, You're taking a very, very momentous step. You're doing something incredible, something that not a lot of people get to do and something that all PhD students, including myself, need to work on is self-value and really understanding that what you're doing, you, you know, you're going into something, you're going to be discovering something, you're going to be changing the field. So really honestly evaluate yourself based off of what your goals are, what your values are. At the end of the day, there's a reason as to why you did this. There's a reason as to why you entered the PhD. Your friends that had just graduated, obviously you're going to feel very good for them and you should do that. Feel great for them, but don't compare yourself to them. They're at a different point of their life and you're at a different point of your life just as everyone is around you. So build up your pride in a very healthy way and evaluate yourself on your own values and your own goals and everything that you want to accomplish. Because I guarantee you it's something that's so hard to do at the current time, but when you look back at everything that you've accomplished, even the small things like how to read properly, when you realize how quickly you're reading the literature and grasping the things from the literature and everything that you've learned along the way, it'll be very easy to see how proud of yourself you can be. So I hope that's a good tidbit of knowledge. I hope that's a good uh, tip for anybody that might be feeling down on themselves during the PhD. I think self-value, again, is something that we all need to really work on. But I guarantee you that, you know, you've accomplished a lot and you will continue to accomplish a lot of things. So with that, I hope you really enjoyed this episode and stay tuned for our next one. This is the PhD Survival Guide podcast. Your host, Firas, signing out. Bye, guys. Thank you.